welcome to the 40 and Infertile Podcast, where I share with you my fertility journey in my late 30s and 40s while also providing you information to minimize your fertility struggles later in life. Hey everybody, here we are again um, with another difficult conversation. This one is much different than the last two that we've had. Um, Today is all about intimacy. And we're joined today by Dr. Lauren Fogel-Mercy, and she is a psychologist and a sex therapist. And today we talk about intimacy and what it really means and how we deal with it in the world of infertility. This topic first came to my mind when Monica of um, Waiting for Baby Wonder posted about this, I don't know, it was probably like two years ago or something like that, where she posted about changes in intimacy, how you feel about your body, and um, when, you know, intercourse kind of starts to be more of a job (laughs) than anything else. And um, she mentioned in her post, and I'll have to find it, but she mentioned in her post that like nobody's really talking about this. And it's so true. We're not Um, I don't think in our IVF clinics, we really talk about it very much. We talk about it a little bit, but as far as what it means in relationships and what it means for you in your personal life, these things come up and we don't explore them. And so today we're going to explore them. We're going to have the difficult conversation about intimacy, what it means, the definitions behind it, and, you know, even the different types of intimacy. Um, I don't think I knew that going into this conversation. So um, really understanding that there, I don't want to say negotiations, but kind of, there may be some negotiations that you have, discussions that you have with your partner about what that means when you're going through all of this. So hopefully this serves as a good resource for you. Dr. Mercy was so patient with me as I fumbled a little bit around some of these questions because they really are kind of difficult to have. And um, so uh, we kind of just went out there and kind of talked about it. And um, she just has this very calm, soothing way about her. Um, certainly makes you feel so comfortable talking about a subject that can be very uncomfortable. Um, so I am grateful for her. Um, as always, um, if you found this episode to be helpful, please share with people who may find value in our conversations. And if the mood strikes you, please feel free to donate to the podcast or leave a review so we can get more listeners um, and get this into more ears, hear more stories, provide more resources. Um, I have a link in the show notes along with the books that we discuss on this episode. Um, They'll be linked in my Amazon shop, so go ahead and check it out. Um, Your purchase with that link helps me offset the cost of running the podcast, so um, I would be so, so grateful. Uh, to you if you opted to buy any of the books we discuss on the show um, to use the link. And thank you again so much for being a part of the 40 and Infertile community. I am so grateful for all of you and I hope to continue bringing more content that helps with your quest to parenthood. Just a quick 
quick reminder, I am not a physician and the information provided today is for educational and informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. So make sure that you consult with your own fertility doctor before choosing any medical therapies that may affect your fertility. Unfortunately, every person's situation is unique and it is vital that you discuss your own personal situation with your fertility doctor to decide what is the best course of action for you. Hey everyone, we're back today. We're with Dr. Lauren Fogel-Mercy and we're talking about sex. (laughs) This is um, an interesting topic, particularly in the world of infertility. I think a lot of us um, start to notice changes or maybe there are struggles within our relationships. And so I thought it was really important to start talking about this. And I love um, that Dr. Lauren and I have a shared mission to normalize this conversation about sex and about um, sex, especially in infertility and kind of what happens. So um, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. Happy to be here. Yeah, and I'm so excited. We'll talk about, uh, you have a book also, so we'll talk about that in a minute too. Um, But let's kind of just first start talking about you. How did you get started and what's your background and, you know, how did you land yourself into sex therapy? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the question. I um, I get asked it a lot. And um, I think it, it started off as an interest in becoming a therapist, having had some really um, positive experiences with therapy as a young person. Um, and, uh, you know, having someone to talk to about anxiety, which I've had, uh, you know, uh, experiences with all my life. Um, and then in particular, when I was a teenager, I just had so much curiosity about sex and noticed that it wasn't something that was talked about very openly or taught very well at school. And so um, I started to just have all these questions like, what are my friends doing? And what are adults doing? And what are other people doing? And why is nobody talking about it? And so I started to... Um, maybe it was around 16 or 17, I figured out that I could put therapy and my curiosity about sexuality together and become a sex therapist. And so I was um, pretty young when I knew what I wanted to do. And I've been sort of on that path ever since. And now I've been uh, specializing as a certified sex therapist and specializing in relationships for over 10 years. Yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing that you knew so young that you wanted to explore this area and that you weren't afraid to ask those questions because those are actually really good questions. So, I mean, what, why do you think it's so taboo? Like, why do you think it's so like, why are we so scared to talk about it? Um, I think it's layered. Uh, You know, I think there is a strong influence of um, maybe religious messages that have sort Mm -hmm. of taught us to, you know, focus more on the relational aspect, but maybe not to, you know, talk openly about sex. I think, um, I think a lot of it is just cultural. It's, it's been the experience and then you add on for many of us not having, um, really medically accurate or comprehensive sex education. Mm -hmm. And so that that leaves you with either learning from some friends or learning from parents and then Mm -hmm. You know, unfortunately, there's just lots of parents who don't also feel comfortable talking about it. And so there's a lot of conversations that don't end up happening. Mm -hmm. And so it's a lot of that taboo and stigma and and unfortunately shame then gets passed down because, um, you know, shame thrives in secrecy. Mm. And so 
not having, you know, just open dialogue as part of, I think, what adds to the stigma and taboo. Yeah, I think it's so interesting because I think it's true that we don't talk about it. And certainly, um, I think too, not that my opinion matters, but <laughs> like, I think too, when you're younger, there's fear that when you talk about it, then you bring curiosity and curiosity brings um, intention maybe. And then, you know what I mean? And then it's like, oh, we have all these young people exploring sex and all these things. And there's fear around that. And then comes on, you know, undesired pregnancies or things like that, that might happen. So I think that you're so right in that there's so many things that kind of come about this whole idea of sex, but then, you know, then we become grownups who still don't know anything about sex and who are still afraid to talk about it and who don't know what to expect. So I think there's, you know, different spectrums of relationships like you talk about where, you know, there is for some the expectation that, you know, if you're in a good, kind, loving relationship, you should be having sex all the time. And there's other people who think that, you know, the opposite is true too. Like if you're not having sex, then you must have, you know, a horrible, terrible relationship. And it it is without it, it is means that your relationship isn't going well. And I don't think Um, I think Instagram has been amazing for a lot of things or any social media has been amazing for a lot of things, but it has also um, been, I think, something that kind of, um, I don't want to say misinformed because it sometimes can misinform. That's not entirely untrue, but um, it also maybe misdirects us. So if we see these like, oh, in a good relationship, you should have X, Y, Z. It's like what it should be is there should be a little asterisk at the bottom that says, you know, like if this, then this or, you know, there's just way too many um, kind of contingencies to that statement that would make it not necessarily true for everybody. So I think when, you know, a a the generalized public reads these messages that says, you should be having a ton of sex if your relationship is good. And if you're not, then you need help because it means you don't have a good relationship. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? A hundred percent what you just said. I think that there's a dominant message that these things are sort of mutually exclusive, that you're having, you know, regular, good quality sex, and that equals a secure and loving relationship. And you know, dissatisfying or infrequent sex equals an insecure, unhealthy relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's just simply not true. It may be true for some people, Mm -hmm. but it's also not true for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so you can have every iteration of that. You can be in this really beautiful, uh, secure relationship and have no sex. Mm -hmm. You can be in a really unhealthy relationship and have really steamy sex and Mm -hmm. everything in between. Mm -hmm. And so it really depends on the context. There's so much nuance, but I think that message is everywhere. I kind of call it the Goldilocks effect when it comes to sex. It's like, you know, we get this message that you shouldn't have too little, but if you have too much, then you have a problem. Well, especially if you're so, female. <laughs> right. I don't want right. sorry. <laughs> no, but yeah. Yeah. So then there's this like just right amount that everybody is supposed to achieve and sustain long term. And there's a, a, a word for that, which is a compulsory sexuality. And compulsory sexuality says that you know, everyone should be having sex and everybody should be having a right amount of sex and everybody should be doing sex a certain way. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it, it doesn't fit for, for a good number of people. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think too, so, I mean, I think that really uh, leads us into today's conversation really well, because there are changes that happen, especially when you're going through infertility and some struggle, and then there's anxiety, depression that comes with infertility. And then I think too, hopefully we'll touch on this today too, is um, when there are imbalances in desire. So, you know, when you have one partner who's undergoing all this treatment or, you know, has a lot of this depression or or is really struggling with this whole infertility um, path, and you have another partner who struggles as well, but maybe deals with it differently and still has that desire while the other partner doesn't. And the the other thing too, um, as the partner going through a lot of the treatment or kind of um, having a lot of their treatments done to them, they, you know, a lot of us feel like our bodies aren't what they used to be. We don't look and feel the way we did at one point in time. Um, and so part of this whole space that we're in is we also lose a part of ourselves. We feel like, you know, and I don't want to speak for everybody, but I know a lot of us who have talked about it, we talk about how we don't look and feel like we have been in the past. And so that I think that makes it hard too when you're kind of going through um, some of this, you know, this, this stuff and then kind of um, navigating that whole space with your partner, uh, whoever they may be, if there's an imbalance in desire. So hopefully we'll tap into that today too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because I think what you're, what you're sort of touching on is how stress can impact people differently. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I don't have an exact number for this, but my guess from experience would be that about 50% of people feel more motivated to seek out sex when they're under stress because sex acts as a stress reliever. Mm. And then about the other 50% of people feel like that's the last thing on their mind and they can't even think about approaching it until some of that stress is reduced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of it too, since, you know, your background in relationships too, um, there's a lot of this, I think, to relationship strain that occurs just in infertility itself. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, financial stress associated with it. So there may be this financial burden of placing a strain on the relationship. And that's like a whole other thing, too. <laughs> and, and and sometimes, yeah. you know, with that, you know, if maybe one partner really wants to build their family and the other partner does, but maybe not as... Um, doesn't feel as strong about it. And maybe sometimes the, the dynamic or, you know, the financial burden kind of weighs on the relationship as well. So it will get all into that, but let's just kind of start with the foundation. So, I mean, I'm sure someone's going to ask this, so I'll just ask it for them. (laughs) What is normal sex in relationships? Is there a time frame we need to have sex? Is there like a sex barometer or something, or, you know, like what, uh, what is a normal amount and how do we gauge what is normal for our relationship? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of the million dollar question that almost every sex therapist has been asked because I think again, you know, because most of us don't get uh, much education around this, we're looking to sort of reference something outside of ourselves to say like, what should we be aiming for? What's a good amount? What's a good enough amount? What's going to you know, keep my relationship in like good condition. 
Um, and everybody tends to hate the answer that almost all of us give, which is the right amount is dependent on what works for you and your partner. There have been some studies, I think, that folks have referenced over the years that speak to like that once a week sort of measure that a lot of people have maybe heard about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is, um, I think, some evidence that relationship satisfaction can be quite good with sexual activity once a week. Interestingly, more than once a week didn't have any effect on relationship satisfaction. So it was sort of, you know, around once a week for some people. The thing is that that's true for some people. And it really depends on the individuals within that either dyad or triad or whoever is part of that relationship. And so I always come back to like the normal amount ranges. So there's Mm -hmm. folks who have sex once a month. There's folks who have sex once a quarter. There's folks who have sex once a year. There's folks who don't have sex at all. Mm -hmm. And that's all neutral information. It just Mm -hmm. depends sort of how that lands for the individuals. Mm -hmm. Because there can be, you know, partners who once a year sex is a really great time for them. It you know, keeps them bonded and the rest of the year they find other ways to connect. Mm -hmm. And another partnership could be completely torn up that Mm -hmm. it's just once a a year. Mm -hmm. What is the role of sex in our relationship? Like, what does it do for a relationship? Does it do anything? Does it need to do anything? It's bonding and connection. It's part of our attachment system. Mm -hmm. And it's one form of bonding and connection. And I think, you know, some people get the message that like, again, if the, if that's not happening, you're going to have an insecure bond or a poor connection. It's just one of the many ways that we can connect intimately. Mm -hmm. And uh, we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but what do you think, why do you think so much emphasis has been put on sex in a relationship? Like, why do you think that if it's just one form of bonding, why why do you think like some of us just feel so torn apart if we feel like we're not getting it as frequently or some of us are just fine when we don't get it as frequently? I think it goes back to the, you know, compulsory sex sort of framework that many of us have been um you know, shown or has been modeled to us. Mm-hmm. We're, we're sort of equal parts sex obsessed and sex averse in our culture. You know, yes. there's so many ways in which we try to like, you know, hide sexuality, not teach about sexuality, cover up, don't talk about it. You know, you get equal parts that message and then equal parts messaging, like have sex, you know, a couple times a week and your relationship will be in trouble if you don't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, don't be too prudish, but don't be too hypersexual. So we get this really mixed bag of messaging. And I think that's part of where we get kind of confused because on the one hand, we want to aim for a certain amount and we feel like, you know, that's what's going to be necessary. Um, there's sort of, I think, just a lot of systems at play, patriarchy, mm-hmm. um, heteronormativity, mm-hmm. lots of cultural entanglements there. I like the point that you brought up earlier, and it it may kind of lead to kind of relationship discussions and stuff too, but 
Um, I like the idea that you said, um, just whoever is in your partnership, um, because some people will feel because we don't talk about this because it's something so taboo, um, that, that there's some shame in the type of desire that they have. And, um, you know, that within having sex, there's also like the type of sex and then, you know, things like that, that are involved with that. So, you know, some people might feel that there's some shame in some of their desires and what they want. So how do, how do we kind of have that conversation with our partner? If there are things, obviously you, you want to be in a safe relationship where you feel like you can have that conversation, but how do you start that conversation if you feel like you want to explore some of these things? Yeah, those can be hard sometimes, especially if you're not already in a flow of mm -hmm. talking about some of this mm -hmm. um, in terms of, uh, you know, conversations that are curious and open mm -hmm. and just, you know, what, how would you feel about or what do you think about or mm -hmm. could we try mm -hmm. uh, those kind of conversations. And so I think there's a variety of really great ways now that we have access to some resources to help with those conversations. So that could sound like anything from, hey, I saw this post on social media mm -hmm. that mentioned this and that, and it got me thinking, and can we, can I show it to you? Can we mm -hmm. chat about that? Mm -hmm. And that can be a nice gateway. And you're using something external to sort of prompt the dialogue. So that could be a nice one. There's also, um, you know, books that specifically kind of walk you through one, one recently just came out called Sex Talks by Vanessa Marin. And it walks you through five different kinds of conversations to have around sex, about desire, about arousal, about, you know, um, expanding our repertoire. So, um, and then some people choose to do it in the presence of therapy and with, uh, you know, a therapist kind of guiding those conversations, particularly if they've been um, really sort of charged in the past, if there's been a history of a lot of pain or hurt around this area of a relationship, mm -hmm. sometimes that can be helpful to do with some support. Mm -hmm. um, so, cause a lot of uh, us at least who listen to this podcast are a little bit older and by older, I just mean 40 plus. And <laughs> um, that in the fertility world, we're like ancient, you know, <laughs> we're like <laughs> dusting off our ovaries at this point. Um, but does desire change as we age? Or should we expect it to change as we age? Um, desire changes for all sorts of reasons, including age. Um, and it can go in both directions. It can increase or decrease depending on it. It's very context dependent. So desire can decrease within a relationship that's really strained, where someone is just not feeling connected, or they're even feeling some hostility between them and their partner or a lot of contempt. Mm -hmm. That's a spot where maybe desire decreases over time. Um, hormonal changes, you know, uh, medications, those can all change things for us. And again, both sort of plus or minus, it can increase, it can decrease. Um, so yeah, it, it does change and age is one variable, but it's not the only variable. I think a lot of people have a message that, you know, with age, especially for women, mm -hmm. that with age, your libido will tank. Mm-hmm. And that's just not true. It is for some, mm -hmm. but not for all. And it can go, you know, in each, either direction. And that could be across gender as well. 
Mm-hmm. Does it for women? Does it change uh, after menopause or around or perimenopause, or does that affect it at all? It can absolutely can, and you know, again, that can be you know from hormonal changes. There also can be um, other symptoms around you know going through menopause that can hit the brakes for some people's desire. So if I'm feeling like hot flash or really fatigued or you know, whatever might be going on might contribute to that kind of hits the brakes for me. And then I'm not that interested in sex. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also a condition called genitourinary syndrome of menopause, which can involve uh, pain with sexual activity that can emerge as you're going through menopause. So um, there can be some things that make it challenging for some folks if you're not experiencing a lot of symptoms and now maybe the uh, concerns around, uh, you know, pregnancy for people who, and, you know, this may not be relevant to our, um, you know, audience here right now, but for folks who maybe were, um, you know, approaching a time where they've had their, you know, family or they don't plan to have more children, sometimes that can free somebody up to Mm. feel, less encumbered, you know, less birth control methods or not using barriers. So again, it can kind of go, um, you know, plus or minus just kind of depending on the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know when you and I met before, we talked a little bit about this. So before we kind of start talking about uh, infertility, but um, I kind of want to talk about um, desire. So I did not know this, (laughs) but there are types of desire. (laughs) So could you tell us about the types of desire? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's, there's essentially two types. Some people will say there's three or, um, you know, more, there's essentially these two types of desire. And the one that we are shown the most through um, media depictions um, is spontaneous desire. And that's the one that people often think of when they think of desire. And so spontaneous desire is the kind of desire where maybe um, it can emerge out of seemingly nowhere. It can maybe come about fairly quickly. Um, It could be a very brief stimulus, like you have the image of something that sounds, you know, appealing to you and then, you know, boom, boom the desire to seek out some sort of sexual connection or activity is there. And for a lot of people, they think of desire as something that happens before getting physical arousal. So it's like the thought is there. Now I'm going to go do things to get aroused and turned on. And then we go through a sequence from there. So that's the one that's most often sort of drawn on in our minds when we think about desire. There's another type of desire that was um, really only sort of introduced and studied around the year 2000. And this is Rosemary Besson's model of um, it's the nonlinear sort of model for sexual desire. And what that says is for many people, it's sort of more like instead of a light switch that goes on or off, sort of like what spontaneous desire feels like. It's more like a dimmer switch. So it's something that needs to sort of ramp up. And um, if you think of it, sometimes we'll use an analogy as like an oven in a microwave. Mm -hmm. You know, the the microwave is more that sort of quick start, quick to heat, you know, you're there. 
the oven, you need to do a little warm up and preheat before you get to the temp before your meal's really cooking. Mm-hmm. And so, um, in that model of responsive desire, what it says is it's, um, it's desire that emerges in response to pleasure, almost like pleasure has to happen first or arousal has to happen first. And so it's the kind of thing that maybe you're watching, um, you know, the newest show on, on streaming and there's a sexy scene or a romantic scene or something comes on and your body starts to turn on. And then from there, you might start thinking, hey, I wonder, you know, where my partner is or what. I wonder, you know, if I might go spend some time on my own and do something with this existing arousal. Mm -hmm. So spontaneous desire using uh, Emily Nagoski's uh, verbiage is desire in anticipation of pleasure, whereas responsive desire is desire in response to pleasure, often after it's already happening. So it, it just inverts our sexual response cycle. So instead of saying that desire comes first and physical arousal comes second, responsive desire says that physical arousal happens first, desire comes second. Is there, are some people more dominant in one than the other or? Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's, what drives that? That's just like a, a thing that some people just tend to be more one way than another is there because you know sometimes if you don't have um i think you said it was a spontaneous desire right if it doesn't come first and then you go seek it then you're kind of if you're you know especially after fertility treatments and stuff like that if you're not really into it you don't feel like you know well or you don't feel good in your body then you may not have that desire right so then it may but then if you're not feeling it and then you know your partner tries to make advances and you're like look I'm not you know so how do we uh, navigate that when that starts kind of happening yeah it's it's a perfect question because those are some of the toughest moments a lot of partnerships have this desire difference Mm -hmm. where one partner might have one style one partner has another style Um, And then there's certainly folks who don't experience desire for partnered sex or solo sex at all. And so I don't want to, you know, forget to mention that there are some folks who don't have either. They don't have responsive or spontaneous desire and that that occurs too. And and that would be within a normal range. Mm -hmm. Um, But for folks who have differences, that can be really tricky because you get into a very common sort of push pull cycle where the partner often with spontaneous desire. So let me back up for just a moment. What what I see in my practice over time, these are some trends I see anecdotally, that partners who tend to be the higher libido partner within their partnership tend to align more with that spontaneous desire style. And partners who tend to be the lower libido partner in their partnership, which I often refer to those terms in quotations because it's lower libido compared to partner, maybe not as a whole, but within that dynamic. Those are the folks who tend to identify with having more responsive desire. I've also seen a correlation, again, just from my practice, that the folks who tend to have more spontaneous desire tend to also be the folks who find that sex is a stress reliever 
And the folks who tend to have responsive desire tend to see sex as something that happens after stress has already been relieved. So who's on first and who's on second, right? (laughs) I know. The biggest challenge is like, what happens next? Right, right, right. So I I guess the you know, that that is the next question, right? So what does happen when you have when you're in that scenario, and you have a partner that uses um, sex as like a coping mechanism, and, you know, another partner that, you know, sees it as something different, or maybe values it more as a bonding ex- experience, as opposed to a stress reliever or something like that? How, how, how do you have that conversation? How do you kind of like rectify that? Yeah. Yeah. How do we bridge the gap? And and that is, um, first I'll say that, um, there's no right or wrong here. Neither part, you know, there's various motivators to have sex. There's various ways in which we experience our sexuality and reasons why we seek it out. And none of it's, you know, it's, it's not wrong as long as it's between consenting, um, you know, adults and, and people who are in, you know, healthy patterns that, you know, you can seek out sex for a variety of reasons, both mm-hmm. solo and partnered. Mm-hmm. There's a, a common sort of pattern that can emerge where the partner who has the higher libido in the, in the partnership may be the one who's initiating more mm. because they have more of that inherent desire or that spontaneous desire how they initiate is something that we can look at. So is that coming from a place that feels like pressure? Is that coming uh, out as sort of demanding? Is it coming out as pouting or getting really angry and frustrated? Mm -hmm. So initiation is one thing that we can consider in that dynamic. How is a no for sex experienced? Mm -hmm. If I say no, I'm not in that place Do I feel then punished or shut out or my partner distances and becomes upset with me and then we're silent for a few days? So there's a lot of dynamic pieces that can come into the fray. There's also um, exploration around what does sex mean? Like, what does that look like? Because many of us follow a very standard sexual script that tends to Um, you know, sort of highlight or focus on things like penetration and orgasms. Mm -hmm. And that tends to be a sort of goal oriented way that many of us have been taught is how sex works. Mm -hmm. The more limited our template or script for sex is, Mm -hmm. the more challenges we may face over time. Mm Because when you're going through something like infertility and, you know, giving yourself injections, going through procedures, going through just, you know, a whole host of things that hit the stress response, that sequence of we start here, we go here and we end here with sex may become less and less accessible for a variety of reasons. And so if the proposition is let's do that, and that is the only way that we know to have sex or to connect it starts to become an all or none. It's like, let's do that. And if I'm not up for that, then we defer to nothing. And over time, nothing can even start to broaden out to physical affection as a whole. I don't want to kiss you, hug you, touch you, because I don't want you to think 
that it's going to sex or I don't want you to think that's what I'm asking for. So we might start avoiding that altogether. So one of the things that we do in sex therapy and one of the things um, you know that, that I often encourage is um, expanding the definition and the script around sex. Because let's say, um, you know, I'm not up for that whole, you know, beginning, middle, end that we typically do. I might be up for something. And what is that something? And often that something can be something that's really pleasurable, that's bonding. And that gets me thinking about what are the motivators here for being sexual together, right? Kind of going back to where we started. So for one person, it may be stress relief. For one person, it may be bonding and connection. For one person, it may be pleasure. For one person, it might be something else. So when we can get a better understanding of our motivators, and what I hear from a lot of higher libido partners is that it's about the connection and the intimacy. And I don't know if that surprises people to hear, Mm -hmm. but the truth is that if it's just to get off, or it's just to reduce stress, I don't know, you know, depends on how things are in terms of boundaries for your relationship, but many folks can take care of that for themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's, you know, within many partnerships, an outlet for that through solo exploration. So most often the motivator for coming together is I want an experience that is inclusive of you mm-hmm. and where we can connect together. Mm-hmm. And so if the motivator really is about connection, there really are multiple ways that we can seek that out and create that connection. And so a lot of our work is really just expanding the definition of sex. I guess in, in that conversation, what can, what can sex be defined as? Like how, how are different people coming up? Like, do you make your own definitions or, you know, how does that work? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it is, it's, it's making sort of our own definition in some ways. Um, I like to use the term intimacy to sort of help broaden the scope Mm -hmm. because for so many of us, sex is bound in genital stimulation and orgasms Mm -hmm. that it's really hard for many of us to tease them out. Mm -hmm. The sex equals, you know, oral sex, penetration, orgasm. They're so interconnected. Um, It's almost like this equals that. So I like to use the term intimacy Mm -hmm. or physical intimacy or sexual intimacy, because I think that that helps people kind of see it more as an umbrella Mm -hmm. where there's all these different things. Because if I say, go take a shower together, they're like, well, that's not really sex. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And maybe one partnership says, oh yeah, that we, we include that in sex. And another partnership says, that's not sex. That's just, you know, time together. Mm -hmm. Um, But if we kind of just broaden and say, like, what are the ways that you're intimate together? What are the ways in which you feel whatever your motivation is that you're seeking out, where you feel connected, where you feel pleasure, where you feel in your body, you know, where you feel comforted by each other? Because what if that can include taking a shower together? What if that could include massages? What if that can include just, you know, tracing your finger along your partner's arm, you know? gazing into their eyes, cuddling up. Mm -hmm. It can be so many things. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we just limit our experience by sticking to the same script. So that's one of the ways that I suggest is like, what would, if we were to broaden that term and and get away from just that word sex specifically and kind of broaden to intimacy, what could that entail? 
And there's a whole host of things that can be part of that list instead of the sort of narrow, narrower, you know, we start here, we go here and we end here. In your work with your clients, you kind of work on the goal. So what is the goal of wanting to initiate sex? And if that goal is to feel bonded and closer and your partner doesn't want to do that, there are other pathways to reach that goal as opposed to the, you know, typical sex pathway that uh, you were mentioning. Is that right? Would would that be right? Okay. Right. Yeah. And for some people, they really need some emotional connectedness to kind of build into that more physical or sexual space. And some people don't need that as much. Again, neither is a right or wrong. They're just different pathways. But for some people, um, especially for a higher desire partner who's trying to find a way to sort of shift into more intimate contact, A, letting a partner know that it can be broader than just this very sort of narrow uh, definition, but also, you know, B is exploring what are the things that help, um, you know, create some space for that? You know, if we're like ships passing in the night all week and we've barely said, you know, five minutes of words to each other to like take our clothes off and get naked and do this for some people, that's a really big jump. No, I like that. And it kind of brings me to my next question, um, which we kind of touched on, but if we could just dig a little bit more about how our emotions impact our desire, you kind of talk about some people are driven by that emotional connection to initiate that desire. Uh, is it the responsive desire? I forget. Was that the other one? Cause they were spontaneous and reactive. And responsive. Responsive. Yeah. Okay. It was right. <laughs> um, and you know, I, and we kind of touched on this too. So there is no abnormal response. Whatever your response is, is normal. But I guess, you know, when, when there's been a shift, I guess maybe your partner might feel like it's not normal. What, you know, what used to be. So when you're going through this infertility and there's this shift with our emotions, how does that impact our desire? And, and you know, what do we do when, you know, your partner feels that this isn't I don't want to say abnormal, but it, this isn't what it used to be, you know? So h- how do we kind of make all that right in our relationship? And maybe not necessarily make it right, but, you know, kind of, as you say, bridge the gap. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly can be um, challenging and um, and surprising for some people because maybe they had a flow and a rhythm at one point that was working. And now all of a sudden they don't feel as in sync. And this has become maybe more of a dilemma. You know, you're, you're kind of over here and I'm over here. And, and, and what do we do with that now? And so, I mean, one of the biggest things is to really refrain from, um, messaging that says something's wrong with you or something's wrong with me just because it's not helpful. I understand why we go there. It makes Mm -hmm. sense that we go there, Mm -hmm. but it's not helpful. And particularly as a partner, I want folks to really think about not sort of looking to your partner and saying, you are the problem. You have this problem now. You're not as interested rather than sort of making sense of it. Like, well, there's probably some good reason why this has changed. And even if there's good reason, we still might want to address, like, what do we do at this juncture now? Um, And so I think there's, you know, a delicate 
balance and sort of bringing this up, not as a shaming thing, not as a demanding thing, Mm -hmm. but also as something that, you know, if you, if you are the partner who has the concern that, you know, we're not as intimate as we used to be, or I'd like to be more intimate, or I'd, I'm missing you. Um, I think saying it in some of those more inviting, validating ways is going to land very differently than saying it in a more critical or blaming way. So that's, that's the first thing for folks to consider. Mm-hmm. And the other is one of my most sort of tried and true exercises that I recommend to tons of folks that I've worked with over the years, um, which is what I call an intimacy date. And the intimacy date is really just setting aside as long as everyone's willing, setting aside some protected time for intimate connection. But the difference between, and the reason why I don't call it a sex date, the difference from just scheduling sex, which I know we sometimes have to do Mm -hmm. during the trying to conceive journey, the difference between an intimacy date and scheduling sex is that rather than scheduling that same old script, you know, on Friday night, we're going to start here, go here and end here. What instead we're doing is we're saying, let's show up on Friday night and agree to this time, but let's wait until Friday to see where we're at, how we're each feeling, what we might need, so that it takes context into effect, which is really helpful, particularly for folks who have a more responsive desire style, Mm -hmm. because responsive desire is so um, contingent on context. Mm -hmm. And so... Being able to say, you know, we're going to show up on Friday at eight, let's say, and it could look like this, 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 or this. What that's going to do is that's going to maybe reduce some pressure. It's going to prioritize connecting and bonding in that way. Mm -hmm. But it's also going to say, we get to have some flexibility around what this looks like. Mm -hmm. And for the partner who's maybe struggling to experience desire or has more responsive desire, what it's going to do is hopefully reduce some of that negative anticipation of, oh gosh, you know, I said Friday night and now I feel like I, you know, need to follow through, but I'm really not feeling it Mm -hmm. and I'm not feeling great. And so you're doing one of two things in those moments. You're either canceling the plan and then it's this big disappointment and you feel bad or you show up and you go through the motions and you're having a not so great experience or even building maybe some resentment and lowering your libido over time, having this really disconnected, I call it check the box sex. Like, okay, mm-hmm. I came, I did the thing. Yeah. Let's move on. So it helps to protect from doing that because then you get a chance to say on Friday at that time, what sounds pleasurable? What sounds bonding? What sounds good to us? today now Mm -hmm. and that may vary week to week to week no i like how you said that because there isn't that fear of i don't want to call it failure but for for some people probably feels that way or disappointment yeah where you feel like you know if the one partner who is that you know that you said conventional you know this this and this you know that it ends in orgasm. If it doesn't, then it was not, the goal was not met. You know what I mean? It right. does take the pressure off the other partner who doesn't really feel that way. And then if, like you said, if that doesn't happen, there's this whole big to do about how 
on both sides, one feels let down, the other one feels like the other one let them down. And there's whole relationship dynamic that completely changes as opposed to saying, you know, when, like you said earlier, redefining what intimacy means and what the goal is when there's an initiation of that intimacy and what you both hope to get out of it, then I think that that really helps the end result not have to be what we traditionally thought it was supposed to be. So I really love yeah. that idea so that it takes the pressure off both partners. So, you know, cause, right. and, and I can understand and, you know, certainly in my youth, I've, you know, we've had these experiences where, you know, you feel like, oh, when you're not in the mood and anything like that, you're like, no, 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 no. Because the end goal was only one thing, right? That was the only end goal. And so um, I, I like this idea that, um, you know, you if you have this conversation and really be open about it, then these are all the things that intimacy can mean. And it really still helps strengthen your relationship. Now, right. Um, this might be a really good option for those trying to conceive. What are some other suggestions you have for people who are trying to conceive? Maybe they're struggling. Maybe you have one partner who has a uh, higher libido than the other for many different reasons, or, you know, one partner is experiencing more stress or, you know, things like that. What, what are some suggestions you would have for um, partners who are trying to conceive and maybe are still wanting to keep some intimacy in their relationship or noticing that there's a decreasing intimacy in their relationship. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's an important thing. And one that can be particularly hard to navigate, um, you know, as, as I said, especially if sometimes what is being asked of us is to follow that script or to, you know, um, sometimes show up and have a particular sexual experience for the sake of trying to conceive. And so other things like, am I in the mood? How connected do we feel? Sometimes take a back seat to it's happening today. Here's our window. Let's mm -hmm. try. Um, what I often recommend is a couple of things. One is, is there a way to sort of vary throughout the month, the kind of interactions that we have so that maybe not everything is, we just try to conceive and then we have like no intimacy the rest of the month until our next window of opportunity. Um, maybe we sprinkle in some intimacy dates among some trying to conceive, you know, times as well. Um, sometimes it helps people to take a month off here and there. And I know for some people, they may not be willing to do that, but some might, you know, taking a month off and just giving a break to the experience, the pressure, the, the sense, the, the connection that, you know, sex is sort of this, you know, go through the motions for a goal type of experience. Um, so some people kind of taking a month off here and there. Um, and then I think, you know, other ways to stay connected and particularly, you know, what's coming up for us as we're going through something that can be really challenging um, and, and really emotional and bring up a lot of feelings. And so can we talk about, you know, what this is like, you know, as we're going through it, because one of the worst feelings is feeling like you're alone mm -hmm. or you're navigating these really hard things and you don't have anyone to turn to, particularly if you can't turn to a partner, if there's a partner in the equation. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, those are a couple of ideas is, you know, can we mix up 
times where we're trying to conceive also with some just like pleasure focused time together can we maintain the ability to connect and and even to talk about what we're going through together and you know if need be is it possible for us to take a month off here and there just to relieve some of that pressure and recalibrate this has all been really really helpful and really great conversation and so if we want to learn more, you have a book out. So can you tell us about your book? Um, what is it about and kind of what helped you kind of put all all of your expertise into a book? Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited about the book. It's um, a book that I co-authored with my uh, friend and colleague, Jennifer uh, Vensel. And it's called uh, Desire, Navigating Libido Differences in Relationships. Uh, sorry, an inclusive guide to navigating uh, libido differences in relationships. And um, it comes out August 22nd, 2023. And um, it's really all about, you know, what we're talking about here today. It has in there um, more in-depth discussion about the different desire styles. Uh, it talks about uh, all kinds of different things that can impact our libido from stress, it talks about, you know, pregnancy, trying to conceive, grief and loss, mm. so many pieces and layers along the way that can impact libido. Again, for some increasing, for some decreasing. It's particularly focused on how to navigate when you and a partner have differences here. Mm -hmm. And so the first part is really introducing all of these things that can impact some of these models talking about the, you know, standard sexual script that we just referred to. Um, and then, uh, you know, in the middle of the book and later in the book, there's exercises that includes more detail on the intimacy date. It includes uh, a really in-depth sort of mindfulness-based practice that partners can do together um, and lots of different um, resources for conversation starters, how to react to each other, you know, when, how do you initiate? How do you say no to initiation? So um, it's really rich with uh, loaded with information. And even though it's not therapy, because it's a book, mm -hmm. I'd say it's it's sort of the equivalent of having uh, a session or two uh, sort of early stage therapy where we're just sharing a lot of information. So it's a lot of bang for your buck. Let's say we read the book and we feel like we still need some additional help. What who are the types of clients that you help and who would be good to seek out sex therapy? And do you use sex therapy in conjunction with another therapist for, let's say you have anxiety or whatever, you're just, you have a therapist for your infertility struggles while you're going through it. Then do you add um, this other um, component of therapy into kind of your treatment in all of infertility, you, you know, you add sex therapists, the list of specialists you see, how does that work? Yeah, I know it's, it's hard when you're adding, you know, provider on top of provider on top of provider. Um, I see folks all the time as a specialist who already have a general mental health provider that they're working with. And so um, that can be something that's an adjunct that is, um, you know, often uh, short term, not always, but but often can be short term having a few sessions, a handful of sessions um, to discuss some strategies and techniques, particularly for folks who are, you know, struggling with 
responsive desire and, and trying to navigate that, trying to navigate libido differences where, um, you know, some of these conversations really go poorly and maybe get really conflicted between partners can really help to have support around that. Um, and also, uh, especially for folks, you know, for partners where this, where, um, you know, you're looking to have an ejaculation, make sure that it happens at a certain time in order to try to conceive, there can be a lot of pressure on that partner as well. And so I see a lot of performance anxiety and times where there's, you know, an inability to orgasm or ejaculate, or, you know, there's a lot of getting into our heads. So those are all times where a sex therapist could be helpful. Um, and I work alongside um, all kinds of specialists. I've worked with um, you know, pelvic floor physical therapists to come up with treatment plans. I've worked with general therapists. I've worked with physicians and other medical providers. So we can kind of approach it as an interdisciplinary team to whatever extent is needed and helpful for folks to get the support that they need. And, you know, it, it's often the case that, you know, unless somebody has some specialty training, a uh, general mental health therapist may not have just some of those tools that a specialist might. I can imagine that, you know, if you're stepping into this space, either alone or with a partner, because you see either people alone or as partners, correct? Yeah, I do both. Okay. And so I can imagine stepping into the space, having these conversations is, can be difficult. So what is a session like? And how do you know you have a good sex therapist? Meaning... You know, how do you know you have the right match and when is it maybe time to find a different sex therapist or what can you look for in these sessions to feel like, okay, I feel safe, comfortable, like, because these are all very difficult conversations when you just meet someone for this first time and all of a sudden you have all these things that you are supposed to talk about, you know? Oh my gosh. It's so, it's, it's very um, brave to reach out to a complete stranger and talk about these very intimate details that for some people carry a lot of, um, you know, shame or sensitivity or stigma. And so it's, it's a bold move to make that initial contact and reach out. Um, Depending on the setting that the therapist works in, they may offer a free consultation where you can meet with them, um, you know, prior to making a decision to work together to see just what the fit is like, see how their practice works, see what, you know, they might have to offer in terms of goals and tools and suggestions. Um, That's something that a lot of private practice uh, providers will offer. Um, if not, maybe a phone call to the provider ahead of time and just saying, can I, you know, just chat with you for a few minutes to make sure it feels like a good fit. If we establish it's a good fit and, and the most important thing for fit is, did you feel comfortable with this person? And do you feel like they have an understanding of what you're coming in for? And do you feel like they have something to offer you to help? So those are some of the things I think about with fit. Um, once you decide to move forward, most therapists do uh, something called an intake. And in the intake, they may ask you to fill out some paperwork and describe a little bit more about your background. And really, the intake is just a time to get to know you or you and your partner in more depth and detail to really kind of capture and understand what what have you been going through? What has your experience been like? Um, you know, what are some things that I need to know so that I can do my best to help? 
Um, and then usually after the intake, we dive into sex therapy. What does sex therapy look like? It's chalk therapy. Um, there may be some exercises or homework or readings that get um, offered for folks to try out in between sessions at home, either with their partner or on their own, depending on the need and depending on the goals. Um, I always like to, uh, at least with the clients I work with, um, I always like to, you know, mention that I'm never going to, you know, push or force them to do anything that they're not comfortable with, or if they have a goal that's currently out of reach in terms of anxiety provoking or feels just super uncomfortable, that we can slowly work our way towards that goal by breaking things up so that we're not getting so overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes, you know, um, we might space out sessions, so I'll see you, we'll talk about what's a good tool to try, and then let's follow up in three or four weeks to give you some time to test that out and to practice and see how it's going. And then we tweak and modify along the way, um, until we get to our goals or if we need to consider a different route. Mm -hmm. And do you find, cause you know, we haven't really talked about this today, although we probably could do a whole episode on this, but, um, you know, mostly we've been talking about in generalities, but do you find that, um, there are differences between like heterosexual couples and homosexual couples? And do you find that maybe there are some couples that are less likely to want to seek out therapy or maybe feel like that it couldn't help them. So how do we encourage those folks to say, Hey, help is there if you would like it. Um, and you know, obviously you're a great resource. So, you know, how can they reach out to a professional like you without having to feel that shame and, and how do they approach that to find their needs are being met? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think there are some, um, there are some things that influence us differently when we are um, folks who have had our identities um, marginalized. And so there might be some unique pieces that, you know, things like homophobia and the you know current political climate, there's going to be certain stressors that may affect folks in the queer community differently than folks who are heterosexual. Um, that being said, in the therapy room, at least from my experience, um, there's not a lot of difference in terms of um, how the presenting concerns are, are brought in and how we work on them. So it's sort of a both and that, you know, therapeutically, there's not a lot that I'm doing differently other than maybe naming some of those systems mm -hmm. of oppression and harm and how they have impacted you know, individuals and partnerships and uh, some of the dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, the, the work itself often looks the same and, and is very much the same. Um, for folks who are really resistant or avoidant or, or uh, hesitant, uh, you know, whatever word works best for seeking out therapy, I think, you know, to seek out therapy is is one thing to think seek out sex therapy is like another layer yeah. because it's something that's just so private and vulnerable. And so um, for folks who have no therapy experience, it can be quite a jump. And so um, again, if you're, let's say you're in a partnership where you're really eager to seek out services, you have a partner who's really not as open. 
Um, that might be multiple conversations over time. Uh, really tough situation. I just want to validate for someone who feels like, wow, I really think we could benefit from something like this. And my partner just will not go. And in those cases, I mean, ultimately, we can't force people to do things, but we can create an environment where there's a lot of open dialogue, curiosity, um, you know, non-judgment. And for someone who's maybe not ready to jump into therapy, maybe they're ready or willing to read a book together. Maybe they're ready or willing to listen to a podcast episode. Maybe they're ready or willing to follow a particular page on social media. So there might be some, you know, different ways to access some of the information to, to start to percolate on, you know, kind of chipping away at the shame and the stigma. Because for some people, if they hold some of those, you know, beliefs that therapy is just for people who are in like really, you know, tough spots or people who are, you know, uh, you know, coming from a certain background or, you know, mental illness, or they may really find that to be a jump. You know, I, I don't have mental health struggles. So why would I go see a therapist or my family thinks, you know, therapy is, is, you know, not good or whatever that is. So starting with something that maybe is more accessible is one option to offer to a partner who's maybe not in a place to go to therapy right away. So let's say someone reads the book and then they've been going through a lot of struggles and they need more help. And they say, you know, really like Dr. Lauren, <laughs> how do I reach out to her? How do I get in contact with her? How do I work with her? So how do people connect with you? Um, how do they work with you? How do we reach you? Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, I have a website, drlaurenfogel.com, uh, which is uh, one place to request a consult. I'm currently able to see clients in about 35 states due to um, an interjurisdictional pact across state lines. Um, I am only able to see folks in the U.S. at this time. And um, so that's one way to reach me. I have an Instagram and Facebook and TikTok presence um, at Dr. Lauren Fogel Mercy. And, um, and for folks who are looking for a certified sex therapist, there is a website. It's um, ASECT, A-A-S-E-C-T dot org. And that allows you to search for a provider by state or country as well. Oh, wow. That's great. So if for whatever reason, you can't serve them in their state or country, then they can uh, search that. And that's, you said that was international, right? Global. So they can find. It includes several countries, certainly okay. not all, okay. but it has at least, um, it's a good place to start. Okay. And would you mind spelling out your uh, handle for Instagram and TikTok for people to follow along? Absolutely. Lauren is L-A-U-R-E-N. And I have two last names, Fogel, F is in Frank, O-G-E-L, and Mercy, M is in Mary, E-R, S is in Sam, Y. Oh my gosh, we covered so much today. And <laughs> there's so much that I think I learned about this. And certainly it's stuff that we don't talk about. And I think this could go on for hours and hours and hours. I promise not to keep you for that long. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, too, in the space of infertility, there's so much that happens to our mind, our body. Um, and I know conversations have come up 
usually in the dark about this. These are these like private messages I have with people where they talk about these things. And I think, you know, if there's one or two people having these conversations with me, Emma, you know, I'm a semi stranger, you know, for the most part, I'm like, there's got to be other people who are struggling with this all internally or by themselves, or, you know, they feel like there's something wrong with them, or, you know, it's not right, or it's abnormal or whatever. And I just wanted to be able to reach out to those people to tell them that, it's not, you know, we've been through a lot in this space and trying to get to where we are. And some of us will be successful in, you know, becoming parents and some of us will not. And some of that kind of lingers long term. But the benefit is there's help. So there's someone like you out there who can either by book <laughs> or by uh face-to-face slash virtual uh, help Mm -hmm. um, can kind of give them the support that they need to not feel like they're wrong or that there's something wrong with them. Because I think, you know, it's kind of like we talked about in the beginning, society has many different ways (laughs) has made it seem like these things are abnormal. But the reality is our scope, our view of what is normal is so narrow that we really should be widening that view so that people don't feel like they're in this kind of like narrow, they're not fitting in this narrow tube. And the reality is it should be a much wider scope of what is normal and isn't normal. So thank you for your work in doing that. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll also add that this is something that's dear to me because I am um, on the door of turning 40 and, um, and I've been trying to conceive for three years and I've had uh, two pregnancy losses. And so this is something that, um, you know, folks are certainly not alone. And even when you know all these things and you have all the tools it's still a really tough journey for a lot of us and there's a lot of emotion. And so I share that just in case that's helpful for folks to know that, you know, um, there's, there's just sometimes no way to not feel the impact along the way when something really is important to you and it doesn't go as planned or it's really challenging to, you know, get to where you want to be. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Because I think for some people, you know, it may come up as like, well, it's easy to give advice when, you know, right? Like you're like, well, Mm -hmm. it's easy for you to give advice. You don't really know what it's like, but the reality is you do. And, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the hardest things we can go through are these losses. And um, it's not the only hard thing. This this whole thing just kind of sucks to begin with, for lack of a better word. It all just sucks. Um, Yeah. But it really is. And it does impact and you kind of can understand what some of these couples are going through when they do have losses or they're struggling with how they're feeling. And then kind of adding this layer of intimacy onto, you know, the stress, the the stress of having to maintain an intimate relationship while going through the stress of, you know, trying to conceive can be um, overwhelming at times. And um, I don't know that everyone knows that there is help that you can help with, you know, you can get a, you know, therapist for your fertility, dealing with the fertility, but you can also continue to work on your relationship um, in that process. And it may or may not evolve throughout that process, but at least with some support, you don't feel like you carry the burden of 
the you know trying to conceive and trying to maintain the relationship it's a lot of it's a lot of pressure to be able to it make is. all that work so I appreciate yeah. your work and your passion and helping us navigate through that, especially, you know, sharing your own personal experience and helping us all kind of survive <laughs> in so many ways. This really um, the, the roller coaster ride that none of us really signed up for. <laughs> so yeah. I appreciate it. And thank you for putting out this book for those of us who maybe don't have access to you in certain states. Um, so thank you so much for being here. And I hope that you'll come back at some point in time and we can explore more topics. Oh, I'd love to. There's so much, like you said, we could go on and on because there's just so much to pack in around this subject. Yes, I'm open to it if you are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here today and we'll talk soon, okay? Thank you. Thanks. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I hope you found today's episode helpful. As always, please share with anyone who may find value in our conversations. And if the mood strikes you, please feel free to donate to the podcast or leave a five-star review so we can get more listeners to hear these stories and resources. I will have a link in the show notes along with the books that we discussed on this episode. They'll be linked to my Amazon shop. Your purchase with that link helps me offset the costs of running the podcast. So I'd be so grateful if you opted to buy any of the books we discussed on the show through that link. Thank you to everyone who is part of the 40 and infertile community. I am so grateful for all of you and I hope to continue bringing you more content that helps you in your quest to parenthood. If you want to have a question or topic covered in future episodes, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at 40 and infertile.